And I think it's kind of a natural human state to like see that there's a problem and see a solution to it. But we're so quick to like cut off that train of that line of thinking before we allow ourselves to really think through like what what is it that I'm scared of and what is it that I actually think is going to stop me. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that... Zach Obrant is the co-founder of Book in a Box, which helps innovators and entrepreneurs turn their ideas into a book in just six months. At this point, Book in a Box has helped write, publish, and market about 900 books, including many of the books that Cameron Harold has written. And he's been a guest on this show, as you know, last week and a couple times prior. And as of today, Book in a Box has reached tens of thousands of people. Now, Zach's co-founder is Tucker Max, a four-time New York Times bestselling author, serial entrepreneur, and quote-unquote reformed bad boy. Now, as you might expect, Zach first reached out to Tucker for a completely normal reason, to learn more about Edward Bernays, who happened to be Sigmund Freud's nephew, sometimes referred to as the father of public relations. Just what you expected, right? Well, the info about Bernays was questionable online, save for a great article by Tucker. Now, Zach was naturally nervous about potentially taking a leap and reaching out to Tucker, but he did so anyways. His reasoning was, it was just an email. What's the worst that could happen? And the upside was pretty good. Now, within an hour, Tucker sent back a really thoughtful answer, and they stayed in touch. Eventually, they connected over a shared passion for publishing and created a new model for writing and publishing books, which ultimately turned into Book in a Box. Now, Zach teaches us that being an impactful entrepreneur doesn't necessarily mean you have to be able to think outside of the box. It's often better to be able to simply identify a potential problem and having the willingness to try to create a solution. And while identifying the problem is certainly important, it's the willingness to take a risk that really separates the extraordinary from the rest of the pact. The best ideas do not do anything without action. This is an action-packed episode loaded with wisdom and value, so bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Zach Obron, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited that Cameron Harold, the one and only, connected us a while back. And it's been a long time in the making getting you on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. This will be fun. Yes. Well, you and I were talking about kind of the mission of the podcast uh, before we hit record. and, And I'm really excited to share your story and to hear your story. And I always begin way back at the beginning with the origin of my guests, their story, their family life. So tell me about your family. What was it like growing up in these in the Obron family? What made your family unique? 
Yeah. So I guess we could go a whole hour on this, but (laughs) I I would say that the short version is I grew up in in Canada and my dad was an entrepreneur. So he, he ran a number of car dealerships and was involved in some other startups at the time, always worked for himself. So as it pertains to this podcast, I think I was really fortunate to have that just kind of built in as an an assumption from a young age. Like we can, we can chat more as we get a little later in the years, but from the time I was 12, 13, I was just like instinctively starting businesses. And by the time I was 18 or 20, there was quite a few of them, good or bad. Hmm. And so, uh, and, and that didn't really feel like a decision or something that was pressured. It was just like, of course, if I want to do something interesting, I can just do it for myself. And when I look back, I feel like I was lucky about a lot of individual things, but that mindset that was just so built in from a young age is one of the, the big defining factors. Yeah. So, Cameron's first jobs were comic book arbitrage and selling, reselling coat hangers to the dry cleaners. <laughs> what were some of the first forays into entrepreneurship for you? Um, so let's, let's see, go way back. I, uh, I was making custom t-shirts for a while. Then I was like, oh, these are a little low scale. So I started importing Lacoste shirts from, from China <laughs> at wholesale rates and selling those. And then a number of like really small things on and off through through high school. And then when I was in college, the first real business I started, I uh, I launched a high school while I was a college student, uh, which was one of the most interesting learning experiences and really a fun thing to do. And then backfired dramatically. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! There's I want unpack what the heck you started a high school? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so one of the things that's I'm, I'm from Toronto, and one of the things that's Somewhat common in Toronto is when students are in 12th grade, they will often take one course outside of school. It's like, oh, I'm so stressed about math. I'll go take math at this external school so I can do it on weekends or, or separately. And Ontario had just allowed online high schools to exist. And no one was bringing those two pieces together where I was like, it seems really straightforward for someone to start a school, get accredited. Uh, only offer one-off individual courses and then do them online in a really supportive way to guide people through what they need to know, especially a class like that where people really want to move at their own pace. But I was like, clearly, I can't do that. I don't even have a college degree. Like, There, there needs to be someone else. So I looked into all the rules, emailed the, the Board of Education or whatever whatever we call it in Canada. And basically, they, their response was, no, well, it's not technically allowed. We don't have any... Not technically not allowed. We don't have any rules around this. And so I was like, all right, I'll go through the first step of getting accredited, which is like fill out a bunch of paperwork, send it in, and kind of forgot about it. And a few months later, I get the response. It's like, you've been approved. Step two is to write your curriculum. It's like, I can curriculum, I can do that. That's I have the textbook, whatever. And so I put that together and submitted it and put this whole big formal proposal and got it back and said, you're accredited and said, moved through all the steps uh, until I was done. It was uh, it was like June of, I, I don't know what year it was, I guess my junior year of college. And I was approved to start teaching classes in September. And so I spent the whole summer getting students signed up for the school, running, learning how to use Facebook ads, sponsoring baseball tournaments, doing all kinds of stuff. Didn't get a huge response, but I got a good number of students signed up. And then towards September, uh, one of the students asked, do you offer AP courses? I was like, oh, that's brilliant. I should offer advanced placement. I can get them college degree uh, courses too. And so part of getting accredited was going in for a meeting and presenting your case. And when I walked in, they lost their... Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they lost their shit. They were like, you're a 
19 year old, like, where are your teachers? And I was like, you approved all my stuff. And basically it escalated to the point that was like, we're going to shut you down, even though we're going to, we will potentially shut you down in the future, even though we have no right to. Uh, And I just (laughs) freaked out and was like, I don't want these kids not graduating high school because of me, whatever. So I refunded everyone's money and just like shut down shop like two weeks before I was planning to start. Uh, So I have no idea. Now I almost wish I knew what would have happened, but Wow, uh, I think it was probably the better move to not not risk people's futures. But God, yeah, I went into my senior year of, of college. All my friends had like worked a summer job or like done something, gone on a trip, and I was like burnt out, zero dollars in the bank, extremely stressed, but had this crazy learning experience. Oh my gosh! So th- I mean, that's talk about. I was going to save this for later, but we might as well talk about thinking outside of the box because that's way outside of the box. You know, starting an online college and on, uh, online high school. So what were some of the the lessons that you learned that you took away from from just taking one step and then seeing how that went and then the next step and then the next step and then ultimately realizing that you had to about face? What's, what's interesting, and I don't know if this is... It, it's hard to know when you look back at things in the past, whether that's what built your mindset or whether that mindset existed before. But there's there's really... An extent to which, like, that seems outside the box because other people have not done it, but it's not really like there's something that was wrong and easy to solve. Mm-hmm. And I took one step towards it to see where I would run into a wall that would stop. And I expected the wall to come right away. It ended up coming later, but it easily could have not come at all. And, and that's always kind of been the way I've approached things like that is like, it's not outside the box just because it's unlikely. It, as long as it makes sense, then like let's see where the actual problem lies. Mm. And that, especially with that, with that problem, was like there's nothing inherently wrong about this except for that I think someone else should stop me. So why would I stop myself? Let's wait for someone else to stop me. Mm. And ultimately, at the end, like at the time, I regretted it. I was all upset. <laughs> uh, looking back now, like I think it was probably more than I would have learned at like an internship or whatever I would have done that summer instead. So I'm yeah. I'm happy in retrospect, but. I don't know if there's really any planning that I could have done that would have avoided that. And I'm glad I, I showed myself that like all the steps and places where I thought something was going to get in the way, it didn't. It was just this one kind of slice of bureaucracy. And maybe I shouldn't do things that involve too much government from, from here on out was, was really the conclusion. I, I think you bring up a good point. And, and I'd like to talk about it a little bit more in terms of it's not necessarily thinking about thinking about things outside of the box. It's, it's having eyes to see a potential problem and having the willingness to try to create a solution. So I guess I guess the question is how do we how do we build that? How do we train that? How do we develop that kind of an awareness or sensitivity? Yeah, I, I love that as a question. And I, I don't kind of claim to have any real good answer to it, but my perception is that it's not something that needs to be trained. It's stopping it. Like we need to untrain ourselves from stopping ourselves from thinking that. And that especially like you go through the school system, you go through your life, especially at a young age like that. The assumption is that you should go pick apart why things won't work and that things need to be having a hundred percent chance of success to be worthwhile. And don't I want to do well on my test? And no one told me to do this. And I think it's kind of a natural human state to like see that there's a problem and see a solution to it. But we're so quick to like cut off that train of that line of thinking before we allow ourselves to really think through like what, what is it that I'm scared of and what is it that I actually think is going to stop me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think a lot of that comes back to like growing up in, in a world where that wasn't cut off and that wasn't questioned. 
But from what I've seen with, with especially with like young entrepreneurs developing, it's not, that's a pretty natural, relatively easy skill to have as long as we're not getting in our own way by saying, no, that won't work. And I won't even let myself consider that possibility. And, and really, it comes from just seeing like, when have you complained about anything or heard someone complain where you empathize and say, God, I wish the world just worked this other way? It's just taking that one extra step to say, like, why doesn't it? And can I do something about that? Yeah, that's true. And I think that ultimately, to be honest, if we're really being honest, it's it's because we're kind of lazy and we think, ah, somebody else will do it, you know, or I'm too busy. And we make excuses because ultimately we're super comfortable and cozy in our our lounge chairs and it doing something, doing anything that's not normal takes risk, right? And people are so averse to risk. Yeah, it's interesting. So so that's where I start to I think I the whatever, whether that's genetics or environment or whatever, where I just don't have that. Like my mm. deep discomfort and fear comes from the feeling that I might be boring and not take a risk. Mm-hmm. The thought of taking a risk doesn't feel risky to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's, I think, just a matter of, of mm-hmm. upbringing and a whole different world of insecurities that yeah. aren't revolved around what if I fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, uh, one of the things that you, I, I read that you say is having a bias toward action. And uh, it's something that Carrie Lorenz, who was the, the first female F-14 Tomcat fighter pilot in the Navy, also said when I interviewed her is that a key to success is having a bias toward action. And I think we can train our biases, you know? Mm-hmm. We we can decide what biases we adopt and subscribe to and continue to develop or or not, you know? Yeah. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the environment. And that's why environment is so important, who you allow into your envir- environment and your community to help shape your thinking, because we are a product of our experiences. Totally. Yeah. There's only I think we totally have the ability to control that. But it takes extreme conscious effort and surrounding yourself with people who already have those biases that you want is like the lazy subconscious way to, to get the same effect. Um, I read somewhere that you describe yourself as a psych nerd and productivity junkie. I'd say that was much more. That's probably me five years ago. I don't, I, <laughs> I don't know if I connect with either of those descriptions so much right now. So what's evolved? So, so here's the thing. I am very much a naturally a like in the clouds, visiony, get excited about the plan, not really an implementer type. And through most of my life, uh, I'd say up through like around when I started that high school was probably around the turning point when I said like, for me to get the results that I want, I need to be, I need to be able to play both sides of that. I need to be able to actually implement things and not just dream and jump around and be flighty. And basically, so from that point, when I was like 20 through for the five, six years after that, I had, I, I almost made myself be obsessed with productivity, not because I think it's something that most people should be obsessed with, but because for me, it was the only way to push myself in a direction where I'd actually get anything done, mm-hmm. uh, anything done on my own. Mm-hmm. Now I feel like I actually have a little bit of the reversal of that. That's like, I've, embedded so many beliefs and mindsets that now that our company is almost 40 people and work needs to be spread around more where I'm 
so willing to wanting to take things on myself and so focused and connect my identity so much with the outcome of the work I do myself that it's something I'm trying to reverse because it's holding me back in some ways. But at that time, there was no way that I was going to move the things in my life forward that I wanted to without obsessing over how to basically manipulate myself into wanting to work mm-hmm. more and be more in the weeds. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done the Colby index? Yeah. So I am a, uh, what was it? A, I can get the exact numbers wrong, but like five, five, nine, one, something like that. Oh, wow. So yeah, you are a big time visionary and a, oh, a one. My last one was one. I'm definitely nine to one. It might be four, four, nine, one or five. five yeah, nine, yeah. One. That's that's an the one is the implementation number. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you had to like work like incredibly hard, man. That must have been. How did you prevent yourself from feeling burnout during that time? It's hard to know. I mean, I especially at that time, I wouldn't. I didn't have a like a lens to see that through. I didn't. I didn't really, it seems weird to say, I didn't really know how different people were. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was just like, I, I was, there's a reason that it was in whatever bio or description you found. Like I obsessed over that because in my mind, it was the thing between where I was and where I wanted to be. It was like the only thing that was in my way of accomplishing what I want. And yeah, it was, I, I think I may have been burned out at times, but I would just kind of heads down through it through that phase. Also like, traveling a lot, meeting a lot of new people. Like there was enough new stimulus and excitement for me to just be like always riding a second wind. Mm. Uh, and at some point I'd done enough of that to build those habits where it was more scary for me not to be like that than to be like that. Yeah. You know, I just had a kind of a revelation as you were talking that really the, the, the Colby index and people listening, I've talked about it before, but go to, you know, just Google Colby index and read about it. It's a phenomenal tool. It's not the only tool out there, but it's a really informative tool about your natural mode of operating. But that's a luxury to have, right? That's a luxury item to be able to leverage on your nine and assign someone else to take care of your implementation factor. And But right. when you're just starting out, there is no one else. It's that is exactly it. It's it. It's yourself against yourself, and the only way you can get from point A to B is if you do the work. Right. Yes, and that's. I mean, it's something I actually see pretty frequently in in entrepreneurs. And maybe there's a, a decent sized subset of entrepreneurs who seem to fit this category of like, I don't think I've done a great job making the most of my strengths in my life. But I've done a phenomenal job of getting rid of every weakness because I spend a lot of time where it's just me. And if there's a gap and I can't solve it, then then it's not going to happen. And so you could drop me into any job in our company out of 40 people. I won't be, I'll be good enough to keep keep the ship afloat. Right. Yeah. But there's nothing that's like, oh, and then that's the area where I'm in my zone. Like it's, it's the flexibility and adaptability to be pretty good at everything that Mm -hmm. then serves me pretty well. The world is best if most people do that. I just think it's a mode of getting through the early phases that that serves a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And you know, the 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 definition, the true meaning of the word passion is the willingness to suffer for something. So, you know, the 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 fact that you were willing to put yourself in a position shows that you're just passionate about realizing the fullness of what you're capable of doing. And we don't ha- we don't see that a lot today because Frankly, I mean, we we ha- we get a lot, you know, especially in Western civilization. 
like we we have immediate security for the most part from the time that we're born. So we don't actually have to work for something uh, as hard as mm-hmm. somebody else might have to. Like, do you have, you know who Aaron Bali is, the founder of uh, udemy.com? No, I know Udemy. I don't know. Okay, so Aaron. Aaron, Aaron's the founder um, and he's from Turkey and he grew up in a village in Southern Turkey in the high mountains. And he had to walk to school through the snow practically every day to a one-room classroom from kindergarten th- through eighth grade. And ha- as he's telling me this story, I'm like, dude, that must have been so hard for you. And then I, then I had this like, I'm like, dude, that's no, that's just, that was just your normal. You didn't know anything, but, you know? Yeah. But you take a guy like him and, and you plug him into a, a structure, a system that's got efficiency and infrastructure and systems versus somebody who didn't have to work for this for, for as much security. Mm-hmm. And he's going to excel more than the other person, generally speaking. So you're the co-founder of Book in a Box with Tucker Max. But tell us about how the two of you actually met. When I was in college, and this is after all the, the high school stuff, I'm in my senior year. I'm working like crazy to try to, <laughs> to pay the rent because I lost all my money the, the summer before. So uh, part of this, I'm, I'm in this kind of productivity focus that, that we had spoken about. and. Part of it was kind of reading a lot from people who had had what I thought was great advice around careers and businesses and that kind of thing. And one of the things that was coming up over and over was really like taking larger risks and feeling okay having these these situations where there, there's something kind of unintuitive in human nature where if I tell you there's something that that will give you a thousand to one odds, but you'll fail at it 99 times out of 100. That's a great bet. But we don't often take those because it feels kind of crappy to fail 99 times out of 100. So we'll say, oh, that's probably not going to work, even though the expected value is really good. And so this was like a theme that it was rolling around in my head. And I decided like, when I have something where I say, I wish I could get support from some person who probably won't answer me, uh, I should just do it because how much cost is there to sending an email versus the benefit that might come from meeting someone I think is interesting or, or getting support? And so I forget who the first few people were, but one of the first ones was Tucker, for a weird reason. I was writing an essay about Edward Bernays, uh, who's like Sigmund Freud's nephew who kind of brought mass manipulation and propaganda from applying Freud's ideas, brought that to America, had a major role in some political campaigns and in in a lot of commercial marketing and and advertising worlds. And everything I read about him was garbage. I couldn't find anything that was interesting or useful, except for this one article that Tucker had written. And I'm like, all right, this is weird. This is like the same guy I've heard of from all these other stories. But this article is really insightful. I would love to ask him where he learned all this. I'm like, how I can figure some of this out. But uh, I mean, he's obviously not going to answer. It's like, oh, wait, I've been learning all this stuff. I should reach out and see like what's the harm. And so I reached out and within an hour, he got back to me with like, Oh, you got to read this book and read this article, and this one doesn't know what it's talking about. Really thoughtful answer. And somehow we managed to to stay in touch after that. Emailed back and forth kind of over the years after that. And at some point, he wrote something about how he was working on a new business thing and and uh, was looking for people to support in certain roles. And at this point, I was already running uh, a totally separate business, a, a telecommunications thing, and and a mold removal company, weirdly. So you can tell I was all over the place. <laughs> but reached out to him and said, Hey, I'm, I'm pretty busy doing these other things. But if, you're, if you would want someone to help out for 5 or 10 hours a week, I'm, I'm able to make that work and think it sounds interesting. And 
we ended up working together in that capacity and it kind of grew into a larger role. And then we both at the same time had decided we, that we weren't super excited about the things we were working on. We were looking for something new. Our, uh, our interests kind of overlapped in a lot of ways and, and we knew we worked together really well. So I flew down to Austin and, and we spent a couple months kind of thinking through and, and figuring out whether there was a, an overlap in what we wanted to work on. And, and that's what led to Book in a Box. So what was, the, what was the process of figuring out if there was an overlap on what you guys wanted to work on? Obviously, you're two different people with different backgrounds, some shared interests, but how did you guys... What was the process you guys followed to determine? Great, great question. So, so we were both... We knew we were both really interested in publishing. Him because he had a background in it. I'd, I'd done some things to help him out in that world. And we both knew that as a general sphere, that excited both of us. The big things we were looking for was one... Uh, was there like a values overlap in what we wanted, right? Like if if we're we're very different people in very different phases of life. He had a family, a large net worth, and he was forty, and I was twenty four and broke. So like, there's it's very likely that we would have very different motivations. The question was like, do both of us want the same things out of this business? Do we both want something that we can really build and make an impact in the long term? Do we both want something that we're excited about the mission. Are we both the types of people who don't want to kind of squeeze out money in the short term? Am I okay not kind of maximizing revenue in the first few years because we're building towards something bigger? So all these questions of like, are we pointed the same direction? Uh, mm-hmm. And through all that, discovered like, yes. Fortunately, I was I had a very long term mindset that aligned more with someone who was in his position than than I think most people who were in my position would have, just because that's that's where my head was at at the time. And then the second phase was saying, like, what is there something that really gets us both excited? And so we basically spent the summer of 2014 experimenting with a whole bunch of different things in publishing, working with one person who needed editing help, and one person who needed design help, and one person who needed an author platform built, and some people who needed just publishing. And one of those things was what, what seemed both daunting but also promising at the time, which was instead of having to deal with interacting with all the other people who work on the book in all these various different ways and fit into a larger publishing team, what would it look like if we worked with an author from the start and pre-planned everything and were their entire publishing team start to finish so that we didn't have to deal with people outside of our control making mistakes, basically. (laughs) Uh, And so we experimented with that along with these other 8, 9, 10 ideas. And all of them, the biggest challenge was if we can only do one slice, then we can't control the author's success. We can't make sure they reach their goals. And with this one project where we could own it start to finish, we could get everything aligned. We could write the book with her media goals in mind and help with the media and connect to the right people and all the pieces that felt like they were missing in other projects. So we finished this kind of few-month session saying, like, clearly, we want to help people where we can help them start to finish. And so still weren't quite sure how serious we were about this. Did a few more books, made sure that we really were excited about the process and that we were motivated by the results our authors were getting and that we were really in it for the long term. And that's when we said, all right, let's let's wind down all the other experiments and and we know that we're both aligned in values, aligned on industry, and both excited about this specific business opportunity. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. 
You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. You know, one one of the things that just really jumped out on what you said is that, you know, here you got Tucker, he's 40 years old, very, very successful, and you're just starting out. And, you know, how did how did you guys build trust? In particular, how did you gain his trust? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I don't think it's something that could have been like reverse engineered in any way. We were fortunate that we'd worked together on and off in small capacities for like a year leading up to that. Mm-hmm. And Really, I don't think there's any other way that could have happened, right? He had tons of opportunities. There's no way that at that point, a 23, 24-year-old is going to send him an email and say, Hey, want to start a business together? Like That's that's not going to happen. But because we've had a year of working together, and I just he'd seen how I execute when I'm working, then that trust was just there automatically. The same way that if I ask you how you, how you trust anyone that you've worked with over a long period of time, it's... Mm-hmm. it's Results that dictate that more than anything that you could say or or explain that that would be able to convince someone. So, do you think that that's what he saw in you was your willingness to execute and get things done? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that's that's it, right? Like that he knew that if we're starting something new, I, I mean, I guess execute is one piece of it, but it's 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 the same as anything, right? If if there are a lot of factors that you would look at when evaluating if someone is someone you'd want to start a business with. It's, it's like a relationship. It's like, do we get along? Do we think similarly? Do they think clearly? Do I respect their opinions? Can they get things done? Do they have a skill set to bring to the table? Like, There's, there's a lot of criteria. And, and I don't think it's any one of those things. It's the fact that the opportunity to work together showed that we were aligned on all of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there, there would be no way that through a job application or through anything else, I could have displayed those traits. But having seen them in action over a period of time and and for him having a pretty low risk way to get started where it's like hey we're just experimenting with these things but next thing we know it's working really well and i'm carrying my share of the load it's it was a lot easier to commit to something that could be seen in reality as opposed to something that was just in theory or that we were talking about in abstract so one of the one of the things that you know, I mean, you're human just like anybody else. And um, you see Tucker's success, you see success of others. And there's, I would imagine that there's probably some desire, some extrinsic motivation to to want to be famous and wealthy and have all of the appearance that goes with that. How did you maintain that the balance of still having that drive to do something that matters internally and, and kind of ignore the the noise, so to speak? Yeah, I I might be I think I'm an interesting case with this. Like I'm very 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 strongly motivated by getting external results that allow me to internally see myself as successful and filling my potential. Like that's that has always been what's driven me more than anything. So like there are problems with that where like I if things don't go well, then I can I can lose or not so much lose motivation, but get really shook because the external pieces do impact me. But it's never been what actually excites me. What excites me is the like internal feeling of of feeling proud of myself for for accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And so in this setting, like it wasn't 
it wasn't really so different. Like that, what we had articulated was it was accurate. It was like the vision for what would make us both really excited if we were to build it. And so that, like, immediately, then I'm heads down on that because then that's my my like mission. That's my identity of like, if I'm doing what I say I'll do, these are the outcomes I'm trying to build. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wasn't so much like a there wasn't any disparity between external results and internal motivations. If anything, the external results were just a way for me to fulfill the internal motivations that I had. I love how you framed that because I don't necessarily think that one exists without the other. It's just about how you frame it, as is it is with everything, how you frame risk, how you frame opportunity, how you frame failure. It's it's all about the lens that we look through life with. And a lot of that is just the decision to to do so, to look at it one way versus another. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. And it can it can sound kind of fluffy if you try to talk too much about it, but there's there's really an element of like all the external rewards in the world, everything possible. Like, why do you want that? And and really when you dive in, it's mostly for some internal feeling, right? The mm-hmm. external things don't end up really mattering. Mm-hmm. And once once that connection is made, once it's clear to you that what you're chasing is almost always a feeling and not a not any specific external thing, well, then the external pieces are just a means of getting there. Mm-hmm. And and some people can take that to the limit of saying like, well, then I can just work on trying to generate that feeling. That's never worked for me. Like I'm not someone who's going to feel good if I can just trick myself into feeling happiness in, in a moment and and not really accomplish my goals. That's, that's just my programming. But I can at least acknowledge that the specific goals or outcomes or selfish desires don't really matter. They're just a way for me to like keep me going and keep me working on things that I think are interesting and exciting. And that that is when I realize that I'm I'm far better off than kind of getting lured by things that don't don't serve that deeper purpose. I love that answer, man. That was that was awesome. That was awesome. This question comes from Cameron again. He he, you know, Tucker has a as a reputation as a reformed bad boy. So, <laughs> so, so Cameron wanted to know what is it like working for a reformed bad boy? Classic move for Cameron to, to throw that in. Well, so Cameron knows Tucker well, so he knows that question's kind of bullshit. But <laughs> it's uh, here's the thing: is I I work well, and, and almost everyone in this company works well when there are very when things are communicated very clearly and transparently, and that's like. That is Tucker at his core. Like he is extremely honest, but from an extremely like positive, supportive place. And so, for like, there are people who who I think perceive him as being like brash or abrasive, which totally makes sense and, and is the case at times. But almost always, once people get to know him, the realization is like, oh, he's he is so completely focused on what is going to make you better that he doesn't. Care, care about being polite on the journey there. And that, that for someone like me, where I'm motivated very much by growth and improvement and like internal progress, having someone externally who can reflect that and help me get there was like, that's, that's what attracted me to working with him more than anything else in the beginning was that he is a great person to work with to grow and improve. Hmm. And, and I think if you look around our tribe of like people who we work with, almost everyone, because we've Built out of that as a as a starting point, almost everyone is someone who's excited by that opportunity for for growth and improvement. 
so, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it was interesting for me to see early on. And, and there was a few things that really like made it clear to me. Like, for example, we, we'd have like a sales call with an author early on and we really needed the money. We want to make it work. And the guy would give his idea and Tucker would just tear it to shreds and say, it's a horrible idea. You shouldn't write this book. And from the guy's perspective, he's like, oh, what an asshole. But from my perspective, I'm like, you wanted to just pay us 20 grand and he convinced you not to because he didn't think it would serve you. Like, that's an incredibly selfless thing to do. But he's, he's selfless and focused on the other person's goals in a way that uh, for people with a thin skin can be, can be a little bit difficult. So I, short answer is I love it. And I think most people here love it. But it's, it's, yeah, it's not for everyone. Yeah, well, I think that if you... I was just talking to somebody the other day about this. Like, There's so much like dancing around the issue. Like, If we just got to the point... To that we wanted to we want to serve your best interest right like so let's just let's just get rid of all of the pleasantries let's talk about all of your fears and everything that that you're talking to yourself about why you should not do business with me right now so we can put all those chips on the table and address those and then we can tell you what we believe that you deserve and then we can move on from there like how um, i guess it's just how you how you communicate that you know cuz i i can i can I can relate a little bit to to Tucker's style in the sense that listen I I have a big mission and I want to help people and the only non-renewable resource I have is time and so we need to get we need to you know speed is is of the essence here. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, you would uh you would probably love it around here like we we have a number of practices that are very focused on that. Most of it is just the kind of culture and the day to day, but we've got a few very explicit things where, like, uh, our company's half remote, so we're not always in the same office. But when we get together twice a year, one of the big things that we do is like we'll sit in a group, all 35 of us. And now there's too many people to go through everyone, but initially go through individual by individual and run through, like, from the perspective of the group, what are your strengths? What are the things you're not giving yourself enough credit for? And then what are the obstacles that are in the way of what you're wanting to accomplish? And hmm. we, I don't know if we have time to get into the, the real kind of specifics of it, but it gets ex- pretty extreme. And for every single person who goes through it, it's like a life-changingly positive experience to, on the one hand, hear the positives, like the things that people would say at your funeral, but you normally never get to hear during your life. And then the negatives of like, hey, all the shit in your head about all the ways that you're not good enough. If it wasn't said today, no one's thinking it. And these are the things that we believe that if you work on, uh, you'll be able to reach reach the goals that you have and, and accomplish what you want. And it's it's so refreshing for so many people to get that clearly and in a straightforward way. But if you throw that out out of nowhere, it's going to be horrifying and offensive to most people. So it requires a lot of work for us to build the safety and the trust and the kind of loving environment for that to surface in a way that people are able to really harness and, and make the most of. What was the most surprising thing that people said about you that you found surprising? I, so this, I, I mean, what's interesting is like, what's inevitably with all of these things, you look back at them and you're like, that wasn't surprising. Of course, that's my problem. But at the time, it was surprising. So I'd say the biggest thing is that I, I hadn't thought about it all at the time, how negative it was on other people that when I was coming up with new solutions to things, I would like race forward and implement them without slowing down to communicate why and share things with the rest of the team. And so that when people worked with me, they felt scared of feeling like 
lost and behind and scrambling. And it, it made them worse because they felt like they just had to follow my lead rather than think for themselves. Mm. Dude, that's your that's your number nine right there on the on yeah. the Colby index. You know, that's it. I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, people! Again, you got to go take the Colby index. It's a really a revealing tool, especially if you're operating in a team environment. I mean, it's super powerful. Yeah, um, you know, you guys are a rapidly growing company. You you've achieved some amazing goals. I mean, how many books have you guys published at this point? I think total authors we worked with is somewhere around 900 right now. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's, I mean, we've, we've touched a lot of other, if you, if you count like auth, people who have read our book and gone and wrote a book or people who have been to a speech we've given, it, it's got to be in the tens of thousands you know, or that we've touched in some way. But full clients who have come to us with just an idea in their heads and said, I want help start to finish and that we've helped them come up with the idea. Our writing team has worked with them to go through and write the whole book that we've published, that we've marketed, like that we've carried from end to end. It's, it's nearing in on a thousand, but it's not quite there yet. Yeah, but it's still, I mean, it's, it's, re- it's remarkable what you guys have done. And in the midst of that, you, you, know, you also had some major changes, especially in the leadership realm from taking the company from where you had been to where you guys are currently and where you're going. So what have been the hardest lessons that you guys have learned about leadership change? Well, the hardest lesson we've learned about leadership is that we're not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I say that kind of jokingly. Like Tucker and I had to sit down and evaluate it. We were about a year and a half into the business. We had 12 people on the team. Things were starting to feel a little, a little shaky. And we, when we really like honestly evaluated it, the answer was like, we could learn to be better leaders and we could go from wherever we were, say a, a B minus to an A minus. And it would take two years. And who knows what the company would do at that point. And we wouldn't really be happy because our ideal roles weren't management roles. Or there are lots of people out there who that is their primary skill set and what they love to do. Why are we holding on to this desire to be the leaders of the company when there's other people who are better suited for it and, and we can focus more on where we're at our best? So we thought about that about a year and a half into the company. But two years in, we found a CEO, JT, who is that exactly like A plus 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 in ability to lead and manage a team. Had been the president of a of another company that he'd grown from twelve employees up to I think one hundred and thirty. Had all the skill sets that we needed. Knew what was coming and was just like totally aligned on on values and culture and just like a, a perfect perfect fit for the role. And so we thought like what's what? There's no possible argument except for ego to to not do this. Mm-hmm. And so he joined as, as the CEO at that point. Tucker focused more on like running individual departments that use his skills. So like marketing and, and manuscript writing, that kind of thing. And I focused on as we want to offer new things, kind of spinning them up. So kind of acting as, as a mini entrepreneur within the company to start new initiatives and, and get things off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so all of us were much more aligned with where we had, where we were at our best. And it was just it was clearly better for everyone. And since then I feel like I've I've improved as a leader by working under JT and we've as a company had a better leader by having someone who's really suited for that role as the as the CEO. When when you guys were interviewing JT to take the position of, of CEO, what were some of the things that surprised you in terms of what he thought the biggest weakness and the biggest opportunities were of the of Book in a Box? 
I mean, the really, really simple answer is, and it's kind of aligns with what we were talking about my my personal weaknesses before. We were basically at that point, and, and we wouldn't have said this at the time, but really our our like org structure was Zach and Tucker with a bunch of people helping in various ways. Like we thought we had a departmental structure. We thought we had people with real responsibility. But the truth is like everything was still flowing through us in one way or another. And we were just like, even at 12 people, we're like bumping up against our ceiling. And so the real, like the core thing that he wanted to come in and do was like, we need to hire the right people. And with the team who are already here, who are capable, like give them real responsibility to be able to take their areas of the business and run with them and own them without everything funneling through us. And that's so obvious in a larger business, but there's something in that transition from like, if you're running a four-person company, it can't work like that. And if you're running a 40-person company, it has to work like that. And mm-hmm. somewhere in between there, you need to be changing your DNA in order to to kind of allow that transition to happen. So, so that was it for us, especially as people who had never run a larger organization before, seeing the way that he was able to empower others and kind of turn the full organization into a living, breathing, evolving thing, as opposed to something that just reflected the changes that that we as founders made was like a dramatic transformation and everything else seems to have flowed from there. Hmm. I want I want to go back to when you were in college and you emailed Tucker about uh, Freud's nephew and and the the topic is about like it's kind of it falls under the, the topic of asking for help, right? I mean, you know, and there was no risk really for you because I mean, it didn't cost you anything to send the email, right? But exactly. I, I feel like there's this tone in the in the entrepreneurial world right now of like don't ask me for help. You know, don't waste my time. Don't don't ask for me for help and don't ask me how how you can help me. You know, tell me how you can help me. But I, I'd love to get your based on your experience, maybe a different take on on the idea of asking for help. In today's entrepreneurial environment, yeah, it's a great, great question. So I'd say, I, I think there's, I think a lot of it has to do with how people ask for help, right? You just said like, don't, don't ask me how you can help me. Tell me how you can help me. Well, I'd say the same thing on the other side, right? It's like, don't ask me how you can help me or how I can help you. Tell me how I can help you, mm-hmm. and that what people. What what makes successful people unlikely to respond and frustrated is when the onus for figuring out what is being asked and like making decisions is falling on them. Like they're from overwhelmingly speaking to successful people, what I found is like they are more than I expected focused on how to serve and support other people, but they are overloaded with their own stuff and not willing to figure out how to support you for you. And so I, I've had more, far, far, far more success than I expected reaching out to people as long as I'm really clear on why, it, why it's not even why it benefits them, why it benefits me and what exactly they can do to support me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and likewise, like I've had many people reach out to me with very vague asks and like the, the back and forth and complexity and complication and figuring out what they want is what makes it not worth it, not the mm-hmm. actual help itself. Mm-hmm. And so I think like I think many people would be surprised at how willing almost everyone they can think of is to support them if they are precise and thankful and and 
serious about getting support in ways that make it easy for the other person to support them. I love that. It's all about the intention and actually having an intention and being specific about what you're doing and why you're reaching out to the person as opposed to just reaching out to make contact. <laughs> right. That's it. Right? I think that the, the thing that causes all the negativity is that people are reaching out because they've like read a blog post that tells them they're supposed to reach out to more people. And it just comes across as forced and transparent and I don't know, not authentic. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the like reaching out to Tucker and, and, and then also difficult for the other person to, to say like, Hey, I want to be in more touch with you. Well, like, what does that mean? And like, I want to pick your brain. Like, I don't, you didn't even ask for anything clear. You're just trying to have a touch point. Right. Whereas when we go back to that conversation with Tucker, like it was really easy for him when someone said, Hey, I'm struggling with something. I've read what you wrote on the topic. It's obviously something that interests you. Can you take 10 seconds and tell me the two to three favorite books and articles you read on this to help me out? It's like, yes, I asked me about something. I didn't have to bullshit and say, and then I'm going to write a blog post about how great you are. There wasn't anything in it for him. Yeah. But it was a really clear, easy ask that wasn't coming from a place of, and then maybe we can network later and become best friends. Right? It was <laughs> because, because that's the, the truth is, especially as people become better and better known, they, they can't field every response for someone who just wants to have a touch point with them so that they can tell their friends they had a touch point with them. Mm-hmm. But if you really authentically do need something they can support you with, people are far more willing than I think a lot of people expect to, to be able to give that support. My friends, I suggest you go back and listen to that little soundbite again and again, because uh, Zach just gave you a profound recipe for success. Number one, actually read the person's work that you're, you're reaching out to. Number two, send them a specific intentional ask and then don't leave them on the hook for anything after. You know, I, I think that was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. The one other thing I've seen is, is just a, and this, this isn't a huge piece of this, but like there's a level of entitlement around responses that I've seen. I won't. I won't mention any names here, but they're, one of our authors reached out to someone who they wanted a uh, a testimonial from for their book, and it was a really big name that they wanted to. And they just reached out cold and said, "Hey, you've been a big inspiration on my work. Wanted to share this with you. Thought it would be something you might like. If you if you really do enjoy it, would love to have a testimonial. Great way to reach out. Awesome. Person didn't respond, which is like some people are really busy, right? It's okay if people don't respond. You're asking for a favor. It's great that some people will do it for you. Not everyone will." And then he responded with an incredibly angry, like calling out of this person who didn't answer his email. And and like I I, I don't know. It's, it's there's something there of like if you're going into this with the expectation that anyone owes you anything and that you deserve for them to help you, it's gonna come through, and it's it's not the right mindset to have as you go into it. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel like I was served really well with the mindset of like. I'm asking for a favor without any, without giving anything in return here. I feel lucky if anyone answers, and hopefully one out of a hundred will, and that will be a worthwhile use of my time. But no judgment against the people who are living their lives and busy and have too many opportunities to answer a random email asking for something. Zach, this has been an, a phenomenal, informative conversation with so much value, and and we could we'll have to do an, a round two because I, I think that we're just scratching the surface on some things, but. Before we wrap up, I want to make sure that we can tell people where they can go learn more about you, about Book in the Box, and, and also hear about some of the 
the amazing things that you guys have on the forefront. Yeah, awesome. So I'm uh, I'm on Twitter at Zach Obron, Z A C H O B R O N T, uh, and Book in a Box is at at bookinabox.com. Book in a box. And then what what are some of the exciting things you guys are working on? Oh, so there's yeah, there's a few few exciting things. Since the beginning of the company, we've worked primarily with authors who want to hire us start to finish, kind of surround them with a team, support them A to Z. And the feedback that we would get here and there was that there were people who wanted either wanted to do all the writing for the book themselves. They didn't want someone to support them on the writing, or they didn't just weren't able to afford our our full prices or were more pretty expensive as a service. And so what we've just launched is what we call the guided author program. And it, rather than doing everything kind of for you, surrounding you with a team, the authors fly down to Austin. We do two days in a workshop where we're working together with a team of editors to help them position the book, get clear on the on the kind of thesis of it, structure the outline, learn the rest of the process, and they go home and they're matched with an editor who keeps them accountable and does does editing. And then we guide them through the publishing process at the end. So I'm I'm really excited just because we've got an option for people who aren't able to afford our full full $25,000 prices to, to be able to do this much more inexpensively. That's awesome. That's awesome. When are you guys going to enter the, the fiction marketplace? Uh, I don't want to say never, but pretty close to never. <laughs> it's a whole other world. What, what I'll say is that it, it requires thinking about things from the ground up. Yeah. And it's not... There's going to be... If we ever enter fiction, there will be basically no relation to what we're doing now because it's just such a totally different world. Even even the parable space where there's kind of like a, you know, you're, yeah. it's a pseudo business lesson. Right. That's it. Yeah. We're, uh, you're onto something here. We're, we're exploring some of these areas and, and <laughs> yeah, in the parable space, it's a, it's a little more doable. Uh, but overall fiction, Tucker likes to say this, that like it, the only thing similar between fiction books and nonfiction books is they're both printed on dead trees. Like <laughs> nothing. Nothing about them is overlapping. They have different goals. They have different types of authors. Their process of creating them is totally different. So parables is, is possible that we'd be able to figure out a way to do that at some point. But uh, just pure fiction is a, is a whole, whole other world. I love it. I love it. Okay. Now, here are the last three questions that I ask of every guest. Okay. The, first, right. the first is if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? The thing that I would want to do, if you, if you just made me do one thing all day, every day, it's just solving weird, complicated problems. Like that's, I think, the, as I said before, I have a whole bunch of things that are pretty good. There's not one that's amazing. I'd say the one that's closest to amazing is like, give me a complex situation that has a lot of different pieces involved in it. And I can usually kind of understand the lay of the land and figure out what makes sense. So... Uh, I don't know exactly what the superpower of that would look like, but I guess just superpower problem solver is, is something like that. Problem solving man. <laughs> right, that's it. Yeah, I love it. Big, yeah. What are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent people from realizing their full potential? I can't, I shouldn't, and I. Uh, I'm I'm stuck here. I'm not sure. We'll leave it at I can't and I shouldn't. Maybe what do you want to elaborate on those? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I think that that it comes back to a lot of the things we spoke about early on, right? That the 
I think that those lies often come in so quickly that they're not even conscious in our heads. Things are just dismissed before we even consider them. And and that the things that the, the the lies that tend to make us take that action are usually when we think that we're not able to do something, it's too hard or we won't be allowed or some other thing, or that it's it's wrong for us to do something, right? We don't think we we deserve to take as good care of ourselves as we should, or we don't think that that we're allowed to yeah, meet our own needs or anything else. So I think usually when I see someone who is holding themselves back, it's because they ha- they are subconsciously thinking that there's some external thing that will make what they're dreaming of impossible, or that there's some reason why it wouldn't be right for them to do this thing that they're dreaming of. And usually when they investigate those two things a little more slowly, they're, uh, they're, they don't stand up to questioning. I love that. I love that. The, the last question is based on the title of a book by Clay Christensen, and it is, how will you measure your life? Ooh, it's a question I, uh, <laughs> I toy with a lot. Uh, I probably spend more time than is reasonable or healthy thinking about some version of that question. Uh, but, but at its core for me, I, I, at least from where I stand right now, I'm at my happiest and most fulfilled when I'm allowing myself to be curious and explore things and spending time with people that I care about. And so as long as I'm I'm able to make an impact in the world while doing those two things, that, that sounds like a fulfilling and happy way to live today. Zach Obron, thank you for impacting our audience on today's show. We are so stoked to have a new friend in you. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. <laughs>